When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John, I pray for you as you come to preach. Father, we just pray that um, you would be speaking by your spirit through your word as John uh, opens it up to us that you'd enable us to concentrate and hear you speaking for your glory in our lives. Amen. Amen. So a question to begin this afternoon with. Uh, what do the four people, the following four people, have in common? That is Madonna, Wayne Rooney, Katy Perry, and the Pope. Madonna, Wayne Rooney, Katy Perry, and the Pope. Well, there may be many and varied answers to that one. I can't think of a lot off the top of my head, but there may be many and varied. But one of the uh, things that they have in common is if you look at images of them, if you see them in newspapers or on the internet, or in photographs, wherever, you'll notice that um, they all commonly wear a cross somewhere about their person. For some of them, it's uh, perhaps a fashion icon um, hanging around necks or even as a tattoo. For perhaps the Pope, more part of his vestments. But they're certainly um, seen in public uh, wearing them very obviously. And so what? you might say. There's lots of people that wear crosses today um, in forms of jewellery and very obviously as well. But it's something really, when we take a a step back and think about it, it's quite a strange thing to do because the cross and what it symbolises, it was a symbol of execution. And in antiquity, it was considered one of the most brutal and shameful modes of death that you could have. And if you're interested in the history of it, and even if you're not, I'm going to tell you anyway, it probably originated with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and it was used systematically by the Persians way back in the 6th century BC, six centuries before Christ. And Alexander the Great brought it from there to the eastern Mediterranean countries, and then the Phoenicians introduced it to Rome in about probably the 3rd century uh, BC. And the Romans then perfected it, as we would say, and for the next 500 years used it until it was abolished, we think, probably by Constantine in about the 4th century AD, partly because it was then considered 
too brutal um, a method of execution. And crucifixion in Rome was applied mostly um, to slaves or to disgraced soldiers, um, certainly to foreigners, and in the latter times to Christians as well. And it was a particularly cruel, torturous, and public method of execution. Yet, some of us today choose to wear this method of execution as small pieces of gold or silver about our person, whereas we probably wouldn't dream of hanging a small electric chair around our necks or perhaps a, a guillotine from a bracelet, but we'll wear a cross. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, has said that he believes that the cross is in danger of losing its ability to shock and challenge people. And he asks, are we now living with a symbol which is emptied of its power by the passage of time and by fashion and trends? So, am I saying this is the wrong thing to do? Should we not be wearing a cross in the form of jewelry as a necklace or a bracelet or an earring? No, many of us do wear it, of course, as a symbol of our faith. And some of us are definitely old enough to know better. I did, um, I have asked my children many times to tell me, Dad, when I'm too old to be wearing this, and they haven't said anything yet. So either I'm okay, or they've just gone past the point of embarrassment and they don't care anymore. I don't know. If you see it gone next week, you'll know what's happened. But even if we do wear them, sometimes it's good to take a moment to think about the significance of the cross and what it stands for, and that it's more than just simply a fashion item that we see many people, including celebrities, wearing. After all, it's the well-recognized cross. Some would say, maybe uh, using modern parlance, maybe the logo of the Christian faith. We've got at least a dozen of them, as you would perhaps expect, in the church here. Um, I realize that saying that now means that you're all going to be staring around for the rest of the sermon, not concentrating, going, well, I can see three of them, but where are the other nine? There are lots, believe me. Um, including the one up there, actually, which is fine when you're standing down here, but when you're standing on the platform like I was this morning, it does feel rather like the Sword of Damocles just hanging above your head, waiting for the church warden to press the button for it to descend when I descend into heresy. And now you're going to sit and look at that for the rest of the time as well. That's good. But marketing gurus would now would probably see the cross as a really powerful brand. It's been around for 2,000 years, and it's something that's instantly recognizable across the world. Most people in this country, I would think, have at least a basic knowledge of its significance to the Christian faith. If you were to walk into the street and ask someone what the cross stands for, I think many people would be able to identify the fact that it was something that Jesus died on, if nothing else. But what does the cross really mean? What's the true significance for those of us who profess to be Christians? And more importantly, what relevance does it have for us today? Well, as Christians, we believe that the cross has the ability to transform people's lives to allow them to have a real turnaround in the way that they live. And many people in this room this afternoon can testify to that fact. 
that they've encountered Jesus Christ as a real and living person, and the cross has had a transformative effect on their lives. And therefore, the way in which people are changed by Christ, changed by the cross, should make us want to just delve a little bit deeper and find out what the meaning of it is. Because despite its real simple, basic, geometric shape, the cross is perhaps not as simple and straightforward as we might think. It's multifaceted in nature. There's lots of different parts to it. As the old Indian parable goes, which I'm sure you've heard many times before, the the blind men um, in a village who've never seen an elephant before, and an elephant walks into the village and they go out and they really want to find out what an elephant looks like, but they're blind, but they decide they can go and feel it to discover what it looks like. And one of them grabs the leg and declares that the elephant therefore must be just like a strong, tall pillar. And another one grabs its tail and says, well, an elephant obviously is just like a rope. And another one grabs its ear and says, well, an elephant is just like a big hand fan. And another one says, no, it's, it's like a solid pipe as it grabs hold of the elephant's tusks. And it's not until they meet the wise man from the village who comes out to them as they're arguing about what this elephant actually looks like. And he says, well, actually, yes, all of you are correct. These are all aspects of an elephant, but also until you put them together, you don't actually get the full picture of what it looks like. And in some ways, the cross is incredibly simple. It's where Christ died for us. But in reality, there's a much greater depth and a lot more facets to it than that. There's a much greater depth to our understanding of what the cross stands for and what it means for us today. So that's what we're going to do for the next four Sundays, actually, through Lent leading up to Easter. We're going to be looking each way at the cross of Christ and examining a different aspect of it, hopefully using some different imagery some fresh ways to look at it to help us to understand a little bit more about its significance and its relevance to us. And I'll encourage you, if you're not in church for all of the next four weeks, to um, just take 20 minutes during the week to um, download the podcast. You don't even have to download it. Just go on the church suite, hit the button, and listen to it while you're traveling on the way to work or doing the washing up or something else. Um, just take some time to think through and to listen. And hopefully these four um, talks that we're going to do over the next four weeks will all come together to give us a really good full picture of what it means to the cross. I'm not going to pretend that we're going to get anywhere close to explaining everything there is about it. You could probably do a sermon series for a year on Christ and the cross, but we're going to have a little go over the next four weeks, and we'll see if we can find a little bit more about what the cross, or the elephant, as if you will, would look like. So the first part, we're going to very briefly go back and delve just a little bit into the Old Testament um, and use the words of our reading today to do that, which is never a bad thing to do. The, the Bible's an incredibly consistent book. It's unique, I think, in literature, the fact that it's made up of so many other books of so many different genres. You get your history, and you get your law, and you get your songbooks, and your poetry, and you get your prophecies, and your narrative, and your correspondence in the New Testament, but they all come together in an incredibly consistent fashion 
to tell the story of God's great love for his creation and his plan for their salvation. So let's do that, and let's just, um, let's just remind ourselves of our reading, if you've got it in front of you, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Now that very short passage, those four verses contains an awful lot of technical and theological language. We're talking about high priests, we're talking about tabernacles, we're talking about a holy place, we're talking about redemption, to be unclean, sanctification, cleansing, serving the living God. And we haven't got time to address all that. We'd probably need a sermon series in itself, I think, to go through those. But there's some words in the middle of there that perhaps stick out as seeming particularly strange to our 21st century ears. And we look at the verses that talk about the blood of goats and the blood of bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled about. Strange perhaps to our ears, but probably would have been incredibly familiar to the early um, hearers of these words, the person who, the people that would have received this the early Christians, and certainly to the Jews, this would have been something that they've been very familiar with because it's referring to the Old Testament sacrificial and offering system where animals would be sacrificed for the sake of cleansing and forgiveness of sins. And the idea of animal sacrifice today is perhaps seen as primitive or something that's maybe even uh, barbaric in nature, but we still have um, an admiration and acknowledgement of sacrifice as a concept, certainly in a secular sense, um, perhaps as the dictionary would define it as an act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy. We might recognize sacrifice in terms of maybe a generous benefactor that gives to a worthy cause, but over and above their means. Or perhaps a woman who donates a kidney for the sake of her brother so that he might continue to live. Or for a rescuer who gives up their own life in trying to save someone else who's in peril. Or maybe soldiers that also give up their lives for the cause of freedom. We're familiar with the concept of sacrifice in that sense. But what was it about the Old Testament sacrificial system? Well, scattered through the early books of the Bible, especially if you look through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those books that are riveting reads that will certainly not keep you awake at night if you go through them, but they're there, and there's within them a lot of regulations about how God 
had described that the offerings and the sacrifices would be made to him on a regular basis. He talks about the different offerings, such as the burnt offering or the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, lots of offerings and sacrifices that needed to be made. Some of them um, didn't require an animal sacrifice, such as, as you would expect, the grain offering, as the name suggests, was bringing uh, grain products um, to God and was more about... um, an expression of voluntary worship, of, of um, speaking about God's goodness and provision. And perhaps we can equate that with our, our, perhaps our harvest um, services that we have now as we recognize God's provision in our lives. But some of them did require the sacrifice of animals in order for the people to be forgiven and cleansed from their sins. When God's people had failed to keep his commands, they'd stopped trusting him God demanded an acknowledgement of this and a confession and an act which would provide temporary covering or forgiveness for the sins. And God viewed this in a really serious way, and we can tell how seriously he viewed people's sin and rebellion against him because he required a death to take place, the sacrifice. And we read about that just a few verses on in Hebrews chapter 9 where we are at the moment where it talks about without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There could be no forgiveness for the people without the shedding of blood, hence the sacrifices. And they were a way to enable the people to keep coming back to God despite their sin and despite their rebellion against him. And in spite of God's infinite holiness, and the people's seeming infinite rebellion, God still provides a way that they could maintain a relationship with him because of his great love for them. And in the Old Testament, it was through the sacrificial and the offering system. As we move into the New Testament, we realize that with the arrival of Christ into the world, there was a new and a living way for coming into relationship. Why animals, you might ask? What had they done wrong? Well, that was kind of the point, the fact that animals had done no wrong. They would die in the place of the one making the sacrifice, the one who had done wrong. They would essentially be um, a substitute for them. And in fact, it went even further than that. The animal actually had to be perfect and without defect. And just looking back at a chapter in Leviticus that talks about the sin offering and talking about the regulations associated with it and how it needed to be done. This comes out in several places. It talks about if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin that he has committed. And further along again, if a member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, he is guilty. When he is made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring as his offering for the sin he committed a female goat without defect. And later on, if he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he is to bring a female without defect. There was an element of a perfect animal being sacrificed in the place of an imperfect human. And that's something that is echoed 
later on through scripture, which we'll come to a little bit later. And so through this shedding of blood, through the sacrificial system, would come forgiveness and cleansing. Uh, One of the other things mentioned in our reading talks about the ashes of the heifer that was sprinkled about. That was the, the ashes of a heifer that had been sacrificed. They would gather it together, they would mix it with water, and people that had been seen as unclean were able to use this as an act of cleansing. Sure, it wouldn't have cleansed them very much physically on the outside, I wouldn't have thought, but certainly it was there as a symbol of cleansing through washing in ashes of an animal that had been sacrificed. And this would continue the sacrifices day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Because the people needed a reminder that God loved them. He loved his creation so much that he wanted to walk closely with them. But that their sin would get in the way of that relationship. And sin is a concept that runs all the way through the scripture. Through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. But unfortunately that word has been subverted, I think, probably nowadays by our modern media and the modern way that we talk about it. We look at just some advertising that uses the word one delicious sin for a burger no sin for Heinz ketchup probably referring back to the uh, Garden of Eden there Harley Davidson commit four of the seven deadly sins just looking at it and finally even in our cookbooks chocolate puddings that are referred to as sinful chocolate puddings so for some sin has become as these adverts show just a byword for something as another old advert would say perhaps just naughty but nice but we know that there's got to be something deeper than that even if we don't like the word sin we know ourselves that we recognize when things aren't right in the world we feel a sense of outrage I'm sure when we hear of celebrities or those in positions of power or authority who abuse their position by acting inappropriately. Nowadays, it seems often in a sexual nature with those around them. Or when a drunk driver crashes and kills two young children. Or when we see the results of power struggles and wars around the world that most often seems to affect the vulnerable and the poor in society. We know there is something wrong. There is something not right with the world and with people. And we yearn for justice. And God feels the same way. Except that he also feels the same way about our rebellion from him, which is essentially what the Bible labels as sin. Now, the concept of sin in itself is probably another sermon series. It's a complex thing. Someone once defined it as a riddle, a mystery, a reality that eludes definition and comprehension. But I think Richard often explains it in a real helpful and simple way. Just simply that it's a very small word with a great big I in the middle of it. It's where we put ourselves before God in the things that we say and in the things that we do in the ways that we think 
and in the ways that we treat or that we don't treat others. But it is more than that as well, because the Bible talks about it being a condition, about us having a sinful nature, something that runs through the core of our being. It's sometimes easy to think about sin as something that is kind of extreme acts, murder, theft, cheating on one's spouse, which, if we're not careful, can lead us to feeling perhaps superior to others around us, a bit like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who stands up in the temple and prays, I thank you that I'm not like other men, and then goes on to list the other men that he's not like, that he's superior to. But the Bible tells us in Romans that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of his holy standard for being in relationship with him. Some of us fall short of that perhaps by a little way. Probably most of us fall short of that standard by a long way. But it doesn't matter. We miss the mark. I don't know if you've been watching the uh, Winter Olympics. I've been strangely hooked on the curling, um, which is quite weird, waking up at the early hours of the morning to watch people throwing great big blocks of granite down an ice rink. Um, But as I've watched it, it's become slightly less of a mystery. And you've only got to watch two or three matches and you suddenly get a little bit of a hang of the tactics and the strategy that's involved with it. But I also noticed, after watching a few, uh, few matches of curling, that there is often the commentators will say the same thing at some point in each match. And that's that it's a game of millimeters. It's a game of fractions. And somebody will hurl one of these huge stones down the ice and it will go trundling along and they will just miss the mark. They'll just miss what they were trying to do and the commentator will say, oh, They just missed by millimeters. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter how far they missed by. It might as well have been an idiot like me standing there and hurling one of these and going 10 meters wide of the mark as opposed to an Olympic athlete missing by a millimeter. The result is the same. They missed what they were trying to do. They lost the point. They lost the end. They lost the match. And that's a little bit like how we're perceived in terms of sin. It doesn't matter how much we miss by a millimeter or by a mile. We miss the mark. We fall short of God's standards. Well, I'm sure you're glad you came out this afternoon for such a cheery and uplifting sermon. So let's move on to perhaps what would be seen as the good news, and let's move back to the cross that we're looking at. So the sacrifices in the Old Testament were only a temporary forgiveness for sins. They needed to be offered again and again, week by week, year by year. But as we're told later on, chapter 10 in Hebrews, it talks about the fact that they were just a foreshadowing. They were essentially just a signpost of what was to come in the future. The person of Jesus Christ, God's own son. God loves his creation and his people that he's made so much. And he longs to be in a right relationship with us. But we come up against that problem of sin, that we fall short of his holy standard. And things haven't changed. God still demands that a sacrifice be made for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 
9.22 still holds true. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And that's where God's ultimate love provided the ultimate sacrifice for us, the death of his one and his only son. The perfect one, it says elsewhere in the Bible, he was without spot or blemish, harking back to the perfect animals that were sacrificed. And because of his perfection, because of that sacrifice, it meant that his death could provide forgiveness for sins once and for all, that it wasn't something that had to be continued day after day after year after year. It was a once and for all act. And that's God's love for us, for me, and for you in a nutshell. We remember it as we're going to very shortly. Every time we come to communion and we hear those words, he opened his arms of love upon the cross and made for all the perfect sacrifice for sin. And that's God's gift to me and to you. He clears the way through the sacrifice of Christ for us to come into relationship with him. And he simply requires that we receive that gift. We open it. We take it. We receive his love. We acknowledge where we stand before him. We acknowledge his love for us and ask him to live within us. And for many people here, that's where you would stand. You would say that you've acknowledged that position, that you've asked Christ to live within you. Maybe something from years ago, maybe something recently, maybe a specific moment in time, maybe just a journey over a period of time. It doesn't matter. And for others, maybe it's the first time you've thought about such things. But as we come to worship, as we come to communion, it's an opportunity for us maybe for the first time, and maybe as a kind of a recommitment to acknowledge that love of God for us with Christ upon the cross as that sacrifice for us in our place. Let's just take a moment to pray. We're going to sing just before we then come to share communion together. Let's have a moment of quiet. already following Jesus in your life there's, there's an opportunity to thank God afresh for that sacrifice of Christ an opportunity to ask him to fill us afresh with his Holy Spirit to fill us afresh with the joy and with the peace that comes from knowing him in our hearts and in our lives. And if that's something that is unfamiliar to you, it's something that you would like, it's a very simple prayer that you can just echo in your heart to receive that gift that God has given us through his great love for us.
Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you love me so much. I can turn away now from everything in my life where I put myself before you. Thank you that you died so that I could be forgiven. I put my trust in you and what you did on the cross. I open up my heart and invite you to come into my life and be with me forever.